Let's have a word of prayer before we jump into our subject. Father, we uh, just look to you right now and ask you to speak to us through your word. We recognize the Bible as being your word. And we recognize that your spirit is able to take your word and apply it to our lives, able to reach in places that nothing else can reach. And you're able to open our eyes and teach us and change us and conform us more and more to the image of your son, Jesus. We pray that this time this morning would have that effect in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, located throughout the world, there are various cities or sites that are regarded by people in various religions as being holy. And people will go to these cities or these sites because they're of the perspective that if I could just go there, I'll experience God maybe in some new way or, or some special way. And most of the religions on the planet have places like this or sites like this. For example, Islam has Mecca. It's located in western Saudi Arabia. It's a holy city because it was where Muhammad, their prophet, was born in AD 570. And every year, millions of people will go there to that place right there in that mall area there, and they will let their eyes will see for the first time the largest mosque in the world. And if you ask people why do they do it, well, in their case, they're required by one of the pillars of Islam to go if they're financially able and physically able. They're required to go at least once during their lives. But I think a lot of people say, well, I went to go and meet God there. That this is the place where it seems like maybe God is in some special way. Now, Christians and Jews have a different city. It's Jerusalem. And a lot has happened historically in Jerusalem, and it's, it's again a place where people go many times, I think, to experience God in a special way. If you've never gone there, I encourage you to go there. It's just amazing to be able to stand in various places where certain events that you read about in the Bible took place. You'll see where Elijah stood. You'll see where Jesus broke the bread. You'll see where miracles took place, and lots of times, when people go to a city like Jerusalem, they just say, I connected with God in a deeper way. Sometimes it's more like a site that people go to. For example, in Sacramento, there is a statue of Mary, the mother of Jesus, at the Vietnamese Catholic Church. What's significant about this particular statue is that in 2005, they claim that she wept tears of blood. And ever since that happened, people have been flocking to that church, as well as other churches like it around the world that have made similar claims. If you want to go to a place like this, experience God in some special or unique way. For the Hindus, the city that's significant to them is called Varanasi. It's located along the Ganges River. Millions of people take the pil pilgrimage to this particular city. It's where they believe their god Shiva founded the city and lived there. But the most significant thing about this particular city is its location next to the Ganges River. Because they believe that if you bathe in the Ganges River, you'll be cleaned of all of your sins. The Buddhists also, by the way, view this as a very holy city. Now, when I look around the world and I see these examples, I realize that there's something within humanity that I think is really universal, and it's this desire to find God, this desire to meet God, this desire to seek God. 
and people will grow, go to some great lengths to go to a place where they feel like they will have an encounter with God. But I wonder if we're not approaching it in the wrong way. That if there's not a better approach that Jesus talked about in John chapter four, My takeaway this morning is this, that it's not where, it's who and how that matter. When it comes to connecting with God, it's not the where, it's not the place that matters. And oftentimes we think it is, but it does matter who and it does matter how you approach God if we wanna be ones who connect with God in a meaningful way. Now this morning we're wrapping up our series called Messed Up. Mostly this has been a series about biblical characters that you read about throughout the pages of the Bible that blew it big time. They failed in some big areas or they sinned in some big areas, but somehow their lives got back on track. And I find it encouraging to read these stories. I love the fact that the biblical characters are messed up because it's just good company. We're all messed up, we all sin in many ways. And to to come to the conclusion that just because you messed up doesn't mean you're done. It's an encouraging thought that we can move forward, that we can continue to make progress despite the failures in our lives. But today's story is just gonna be a little bit different. It does involve someone whose life was messed up somewhat, but I mostly wanna look at how her theology was messed up. But her personal life needed some work. It's a story that I know is familiar to many of you, the story of the Samaritan woman that Jesus met at the well. When Jesus first met this woman while he was doing ministry, he met this woman at this well. Uh, She had had five husbands, and the guy that she was with then was not her husband. In fact, the Greek language seems to imply that the guy that she was currently with was actually somebody else's husband. Now, now we don't know why she had five husbands. We don't know if she had, uh, if they died. We don't know if, if somehow they had divorced. We just don't know the situation, but we can all agree that if you've gone through five husbands, something's not quite right. And then to realize that the man that she's with currently was not her husband and likely somebody else's. You realize it was not uh, a, a best, the best of situations, but it's her theology that I wanna focus on here today because she says something that's kind of the key of our subject today. It's found in John chapter four and verse 20. The Samaritan woman asked Jesus a specific question about a mountain called Gerizim. Let's read the question that she asked Jesus in John 4 and verse 20. She said, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, which is Gerizim, yet you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. She's asking Jesus this theological question, who is right? Now I would suggest that the Jews and the Samaritans often debated this finer point of theology. Where can you find God? Is it on Mount Gerizim? or is it in Jerusalem? Now, there were reasons why they landed on two different places. Some of you know maybe the story of the Samaritans. Samaritans and Jews did not get along because the Samaritans had intermixed with Gentiles and so they had kind of corrupted their blood is how it was viewed by the Jews. But in addition to that, the Samaritans were ones whose Bible consisted of just the first five books of the Old Testament. Their entire Bible was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that was it. The Jews, though their Bible continued on through the entire Old Testament that we use today in this room. 
And so they had the first five books of the Bible, plus they included the historical books like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. They included the, the books on poetry like Psalms or Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. They included the, the prophetic books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, some of those. And so the Jews had all these extra books. If you were someone who only, though, had the first five books of the Bible, you probably would have landed on Mount Gerizim. Because God had promised the people that he was going to be, his name was going to be known in a particular place that he would show them. And Moses spoke prominently about Gerizim in those first five books. It was the mountain from which blessings were uttered. And so the Samaritans thought, we're right. This is the right place to have a, a temple, which they eventually built, and the right place to worship God. But the Jews said, no, no, read the rest of your Bible. And you'll discover that God led David and Solomon to build the temple in Jerusalem, that that's where God wanted to meet his people, and it was this constant debate. And so the question is, who is right? As we're gonna see in a minute, neither are. Because it's not the where, but it sure does matter who, and it sure does matter how. Those are the things that really matter with this story. With that introduction, let's begin reading in John chapter four, beginning in verse one. When Jesus knew that the Pharisees heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, that's John the Baptist, though Jesus himself was not baptizing but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. Let me just stop for a moment. But Jesus' popularity was rising to a level that Jesus knew he needed to lay low for a little bit. It was not time yet for him to have the, the amazing crowds. And so when he heard that his popularity was rising, he left. And he went to the northern part of Israel, Galilee. He thought that would be a better place to go. Verse 4, he had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about 6 in the evening. Now let me mention some of your Bibles, if you're following along, might say it was noon. And the reason that there's a disagreement there is it depends on whether you're using the Roman rendering of time or the Jewish rendering of time, and theologians debate that, but it's the same thing, it's the same story. There's no discrepancy in reality there. In either case, Jesus and his disciples are at this well, he's hungry, he's thirsty, and he sends the disciples to the nearby town. We pick up the story in verse seven. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, for his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. If you've heard me talk about this story before, you know that that phrase, Jews don't associate with Samaritans, is actually literally translated, Jews don't share vessels with Samaritans. They so despised each other that a devout Jew would not even accept a drink from a container that a Samaritan had used. A devout Jew would not eat from a plate that had been used by a Samaritan. They despised each other so much, and yet Jesus comes up to this woman and says, would you give me a drink? And of course, he had no, nothing to, to get the water with. He'd have to use her her container. And she was shocked by this. She was shocked for other reasons, though, too. As Dr. Walvert, formerly of Dallas Theological Seminary says, the normal prejudices of the day prohibited public conversation between men and women. 
and between Jews and Samaritans and especially between strangers, a Jewish rabbi like Jesus would rather go thirsty than violate these proprieties and yet Jesus asked her for a drink. Now we learned something about the way Jesus treated people that I think is instructive to us. There's no prejudice with Jesus. He, he knew the stigma, he knew, he knew what people thought about things, but he cared for her. In fact, when the text says he had to go through Samaria, most likely the sense is not that there wasn't another way. He could have gone a different way, he didn't have to go through Samaria, no. It means his father instructed him to go through Samaria. God cared about the Samaritans, and God didn't view them the way the average person views them. And I just think sometimes we need to change the way we view people and reach across the barriers and learn to love one another better. And Jesus was very good about this. Well, anyway, the woman was surprised by the question, and, and how is it that you're asking me for a drink? I'm just surprised. Jesus answers without exactly answering the question in verse 10. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you'd ask him and he'd give you living water. He's saying, if you knew who I was and what I have to offer you, if you know who I was and what I want to give to you, you, you'd be asking me. I know it's a shocking thought that I asked you, but I'm just telling you, if you knew who I was and what I have to offer, you'd ask me. You'd be the one, you'd say, I want that, I need that. She was baffled by that. In verse 12, you aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and, and livestock. She was expecting, of course, a no answer. This whole area, by the way, had religious significance. No wonder they thought it was like a holy place. And, and you realize that this well, the, the well they were standing at, had been dug 2,000 years earlier. It still, still worked. And Jacob had, had dug that well. We talked about his story last week. And I'm sure she took some pride in the fact I'm drinking from the same well that Jacob did. And then Jesus would say, well, if you knew who you were talking about, you'd, you'd be asking me for something. You're not greater than Jacob, are you? The answer is yes. It is about who. I'm going to suggest here today that we get right with God based on who. Now, the how matters as well as we'll see in a minute here, but getting right with God is not about a place. It's, it's about a person. Now, biblical times, living water was another way of saying running water. So when you think of living water, it doesn't mean it's alive, like it's alive. It's, no, it's running water. Uh, it was water though that was, it, it was water that was good for two things. Number one is because it was running water, you, you knew you could drink it. And second, it was good for cleaning, as opposed to stagnant water that just settled in there. This was called living water, running water, good for drinking, good for cleansing. Now, I'm gonna suggest this is, again, what Jesus does for us. He is offering this woman living water that has the ability to cleanse us of all of our sin, has the ability to satisfy once and for all the spiritual thirst we all have. It's not found in these other things. It's not a location you go to. It's not a variety of other things, it's a person. Verse 13, Jesus continues, everyone who drinks from this well, referring to the one right there, will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again, ever. 
In fact, the water I will give him will become a well spring up within him for eternal life. What a, what a tremendous idea that you could actually take a drink once and be fully satisfied. That once you take that drink, you won't have to go anywhere else to get your water. Now, this woman could not get out of her mind the physical idea of water. Jesus, of course, was talking about spiritual water, spiritual cleansing, spiritual thirst, satisfaction. She didn't get it. Goes on to say in verse 15, Sir, the woman said to him, Give me this water so I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, yet you Jews say the place to worship is in Jerusalem. So we come to that main verse again. Which one is it? Now, I've mentioned before that I feel like this question was intended to steer Jesus away from her condition because I think Jesus went right to the core of her life. Jesus knew all about this woman, and it's just like we do sometimes when we feel like we're under the microscope. We change the subject. Now, I think that's what she was doing. I think she was changing the subject. However, let's assume for a moment that the question was sincere. It's still a good question. Who is right between the two? Where should you worship? The answer is found in the next verse. We read, Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming. By the way, that's a very respectful way to say this. Believe me, woman, if, if you talk this way, you'll get in trouble. So believe me, woman. No, don't do it. But, but it, it meant like, ma'am. You know, it's like, believe me, ma'am, miss, whatever. Believe me. You know, it was a respectful way to say it. But an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who's called Christ. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. I am he, Jesus told her, the one speaking to you. Now, Jesus made a number of interesting statements here. The fact that he identified himself as the Messiah, it's the clearest example that I can think of in the Gospels. He didn't tell other people that, but he tells this woman, I am the Messiah, I, I am... I am the one you're looking for. But Jesus does answer the question, how do you come to the Father? Which place is right? And what is his answer? Neither. It's not about a place. It's about something else. Verse 24, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, well, there are two things he's mentioning here. You, you come to him in spirit and you come to him in truth. Now, let me talk about those just briefly because he's making the point again, it's not about where, it's about who and how. And we'll see that the who is Jesus and the how is it's, it's, it's faith. 
It's with your spirit. But the word spirit in this context is not a reference, I don't believe, to the Holy Spirit. It's about your spirit. We have a body and we have a spirit. And the point that Jesus is making is Jesus or God is a spirit and he's not confined to a particular place. He's everywhere. The spirit of God is everywhere. And if you want to connect with God, you do so through your spirit. It's spirit to spirit. And I'm really thrilled that this is the case. One is because it shows that anywhere you are, you can find God. You don't have to go to this place or to go to that place to find God. He is everywhere. But second, it means regardless of where you are or regardless of what you're doing, you can be praying. There have been times on a Sunday morning that I've been up here and um, I just was struggling a lot. And so while I was talking up here, I was praying in my spirit. The prayer was probably something along the lines of, Lord, this bird won't fly, help. I mean, something like that. You know, I'm just like really having trouble here. My spirit is praying. It doesn't have to be out loud. It doesn't have to be in a particular place. This is changing the way this woman viewed how, how you get right with God. And I think even Jesus' own disciples would have been surprised. Well, the answer is really Jerusalem. Jesus was saying, no, that's all changing with me. It's something that's new that I am introducing. It's beginning now. That God is looking for people that will worship him in spirit and in truth. As Dr. Carson puts it, the true worshipers cannot be identified by their attachment to a particular shrine, but by their worship of the Father in spirit and in truth. Now, having said this, though, I want to make the point that the truth matters. The truth matters. In John 4, Jesus said it very gently, but he said, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. Your, your worship, you don't, you don't even know what you're doing is what he's telling this person. That sounds kind of offensive to me. And if you go telling someone of another religion, well, you know, you, you got the wrong stuff, they're not gonna appreciate it too much, but here's what we have to understand. The truth is the truth is the truth, whether it's hard or not. The way in which we communicate things, it's important to be gentle and loving and gracious, and Jesus was that, I'm convinced, but he wasn't gonna compromise the truth. He said, you don't have the truth. It's through the Jewish nation it's through the Jewish nation that the rest of the word of God came. It was through the Jewish nation that the Messiah would be born. Through the Jewish nation that that one who's the Messiah would become the savior of the world. Ultimately, he's making this point, as Dr. Blum puts it, salvation is from the Jews in the sense that it's available through Jesus, who was born of the seed of Abraham. Now, the reason that this is such an important subject, at least to me, is that I, over the years I've heard a, lot of, heard a lot of people say this, it doesn't matter what you believe just as long as you believe. And have you ever hear someone say that? It doesn't matter what you believe, just as long as you believe. As long as you're sincere in your belief, that it counts. No, that's, that's, not, that's not the truth. Sincerity is, is not the right answer. Truth is the right answer. Or I've heard people say, well, it doesn't matter what you call your God. It's all the same. It doesn't matter what you call your God. You know, if you study the different gods of the different religions, you'll find out they're very different from one another. All of them are. And so you do have to decide which one 
lines up with what God is really like. But Jesus was confronting this and saying it's, it's, you've got to come through the right path. Of course, I think what he's really saying, which he said elsewhere, and I referred to last week, what he's really saying is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You know, you need the truth, but I'm the truth. I'm the way Jesus was claiming for himself. Now, what do we do with this story? Well, I wanna mention a few applications here. Number one is, when I read this story, I'm just struck with the, the fact that there's a statement in there that says the Father's looking for worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. God loves worship. God loves it when we worship. And he loves when we worship him in our spirit with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength when we worship him in those ways. And this is a reminder for me that we can also worship God anywhere we are. And so if you're out in the woods, you should worship God and enjoy him. If you're, whatever you're doing, we're worshiping God and you're able to do that. And by the way, the fact that God is a spirit should not become an excuse not to join with God's people in worship. I do think that sometimes God comes in like a different way when his people are together and God speaks to us through other people and there's just something that happens when all of us who are filled with God's spirit come together and worship God. There's just a different dynamic there. But at the same time, this is an encouragement for you to worship. Second, I just wanna make this point that this is described as living water that wells up within you to eternal life and I believe that that's a description of what our our Christian life is supposed to be like. In fact, I think the joy that we're supposed to have is something that should attract other people to our God. They should say, why are you joyful? What do you have? Because this thing is bubbling up within us. Jesus himself, through his spirit, lives inside of us. But I wanna mention too that this truth part really mattered for this woman and for everybody else. I am convinced that Jesus is the truth that he's the way, that he's God's solution to the problem of our sinfulness. And this was something that I think this woman needed to understand. And this is why I think Jesus brought up the matter of her past. I mean, they're just talking, and all of a sudden Jesus changed the subject and said, go get your husband. And she says, oh, I'm not married. And he says, you're right, you're not. You've had five husbands. The man you're with is not your husband. Why on earth point to that brokenness? Well, I do think that there was something about her life that needed to be addressed. A person will not come to God for salvation or deliverance from sin if they don't see they have a problem. If they don't realize that sin is the thing that puts the gap between us and our creator in the first place. All of us are just scarred by it. We've all blown it, we've all sinned, we've all messed up and we can't fix it. And it's why Jesus came into the world. And Jesus was coming to be that one for us, to die in your place and for your sin, and eventually to die for this woman. What's required of us, though, is to put our trust in him and not these other things. The tendency is, I think, many times, even for Christians, to trust in other things. I've known Christians before, for example, that wore a cross thinking, that'll protect me. Their trust is in a piece of jewelry or they put their trust in a particular place, or they put their trust in something they do, thinking, well, if I take communion, that God will come to me in a special way. I think God wants us just to have faith. The righteous live by faith, to learn to trust to God, walk with God, 
in faith. And the starting point is to put your trust in Jesus to be your savior. And so we read in the most famous verse in the Bible, God so loved the world, he gave his only son, whoever believes in him, whoever puts their trust in him will not perish but have eternal life. Has there come a point in your own life where you did that? Most people, it's through a prayer. They just say, I know I've sinned. I've blown it. I can't fix it. And today I want to reach out to you, Jesus, to be my Savior. I put my trust in you. You see, the reason this works is because he was paying the price on the cross for everything you did wrong. And God accepted that payment when he rose again from the dead. And so he's able to be the Savior of the world. The justice of God was satisfied at the cross against your sin and mine. And when we put our trust in Jesus, we receive this free gift of eternal life. Now, next week, we're going to begin a new series titled Trapped, and we're going to talk about a lot of things that trap us. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That no one comes to the Father. No one comes to you except through him as your word teaches. Lord, we want to come to you in, in spirit, but also in truth, O oh Lord. We thank you that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you we can always turn to you. Thank you that it's not a, about a special place. It's not about some special ritual or something we do. It's simply about faith in you as our God and faith in your Son as our Savior. And we want to thank you for that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.